Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. You can be seated. Before we play the opening trailer here, let's just pause it for a second. Uh, yesterday there were two shootings in the U.S., one in El Paso, Texas, and one in Dayton, Ohio. And I just wanted to take a minute as a church to pray and pray for the people whose family members aren't coming home today and who are now suffering and grieving and beginning to prepare funerals. And so let's just pray for them this morning. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful you're a good God, but this world is not good. And there are people today, people just like us, people with family and with dreams and hopes who have had those cut short. And God, we pray that you will bring peace. Lord, we pray that you will return to this world and set things right. God, I pray that you show us where we can help and heal. But God, I pray for the people and the communities in El Paso and, and Dayton. Lord, I pray that you will bring supernatural healing. That, Lord, somehow you will work through these horrible situations, through this horrible brokenness in our world, and you will, will remind us that you are love and that you love us. And Lord, I pray that through these horrible tragedies, you bring good. Because you're such a good God, you can even take our worst broken moments and somehow turn and bring good from them. And God, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See, when we expect to fail, many times we undermine our attempts to succeed. I think too often I stumble not because there's an enemy opposing me or because God's not with me, but I go into a situation expecting to fall. I almost set myself up for failure. I think too often I fail because I choose to surrender before the first shot of the battle is even fired. I'm just like, it'll be easier to give up now than to go into this thing and maybe fail. So I'll just pre-fail to prevent my heartbreak. Now, this message today is not going to break down into a message of positive thinking. Like, just believe you can, and you can do it. I don't think that would be helpful. I don't think that's realistic. You can think you can fly all you want, but you start jumping off enough buildings that are high enough, you'll start breaking some legs, literally. And I think there's a line between being positive and saying, hey, we can do this, this thing can happen, and just being straight insane. There's a line in there somewhere, and we need to make sure that we stay on the, the sane side of it. But the voice that you hear the most, the voice that you listen to the most, is your voice. The voice where you're self-talking, you're talking in your head, that's the voice you hear the most, and that's the voice you believe the most. And sometimes we lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves we can't when with God we actually can. Do you do this? I do this in my life. I'll be like, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. Well, I couldn't do it if I was on my own. But if God is with me and for me, it's actually possible. I can do it. There's a whole new line of books that are coming out in the leadership space about how the best indicator of success in the business world is not IQ. It's not your intelligence 
but it's your EQ, your emotional intelligence. How do you deal with your emotions? How aware are you about how what you're feeling is affecting what you're doing? And I believe that enthusiasm can overcome a lot of obstacles, but despair will create obstacles that don't exist and will actually slow you down or even sometimes prevent you from doing what you could do. So, I don't think Henry Ford's quote is biblical, but I think it brings up a biblical point. If you think God will show up, or if you think God won't, you're probably right. There's probably some element of truth to that. Because we see in scripture that for some reason, God holds back what he wants to do when we don't think he's going to do anything. You say, Alex, where in the world is that in the Bible? Well, Matthew 13, 58, it says, And Jesus did only a few miracles there because of their lack of faith. He just did a few because they did not believe, because they had a lack of Effect. Now, you know what I love about this verse right here? Jesus is so generous. He's such a good God. He still did miracles there, even though they didn't believe. He did some, but he didn't do all that he wanted to do because they didn't believe. And so many times in my life, I'm like, God's not going to show up. I'm going to pray about this, but he's not going to show up. And yet he still shows up despite my lack of belief. But I don't want there to be moments in my life where he wanted to show up. He had a dream about showing up. He wanted to do something. And I was like, I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't believe. And somehow that stopped what he wanted to do. This week I was praying about something. Uh, I was like, this needs to happen in this person's life. I was praying about it. I was talking to them about it. And they're like, I'm not doing it. And I'm like, Lord, just change your mind. Just change your mind. And as I prayed, it was like, never's going to happen. Their mind is not going to be changed. They're going to stay as they are. I'll just pray about it because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to do stuff like praying about it. And so I prayed about it and I'm like, nothing's going to happen. When that person came around, later on that same day, I was like, whoa. I didn't believe, but God was still generous and showed me. And, uh, you know, you get that little voice in your head like, you're preaching about this idiot. You think you could have uh, practiced it this week. But it was just a reminder that sometimes even when we don't believe he's so good and generous, he still does miracles. But there's times when he wants to do miracles, and we just lack faith. Faith is more than positive thinking. Faith is a deep confidence, a belief that God is good, not bad. That God is a good God, not a bad God. See, I don't struggle to believe that God is powerful. Okay, If he created everything, it makes sense that he's all-powerful. What I struggle with is, will he use his power to help me? He might use his power to help someone else because they're great. Because they're awesome. You know, I understand why he'd help them. Why would he help me? I've messed up. I've done things. I've, you know, he's just busier with more important people. And there's times in my life when I wish God's power had shown up and it didn't. And sometimes that makes me gun shy to take my next step of faith because I'm like, God didn't show up over there. What if he doesn't show up again? And I think sometimes we undermine our step of faith with doubt. We undermine what God wants to do with our doubts. In James 1, 6-7, it says, When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. The one who doubts is like a wave on the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. At the end of the month, uh, my family read this house down in Florida, and uh, they're flying Darby and I down for the family vacation. And so we're really excited to go to the beach. My brother and I have this thing we do at the beach. Um, we go out as far in the waves as we dare without my mom or my wife getting worried about how far out I am, where the waves are really crashing, and we just get beat to a pulp by the waves. We think that's awesome, you know, like, survive out here as the waves are just smashing us back and forth. And if I'm trying to go a direction out there, the waves are like, 
you're just going to go whatever direction I send you. And we're getting thrown around, and I'm always losing sunglasses, you know. And sometimes you have to hold on to your swim trunks because the waves are hitting you so hard and pushing you to the bottom. And he says, that's what it's like to live by doubt rather than living by faith. And then James says this thing, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. How many times have I received nothing? Have you received nothing when you ask God for something? Because I simply mouth words to heaven and I didn't expect anyone to hear or listen or do anything. Imagine what, what our lives might look like if when we came to an impossible situation with this attitude. What if God shows up? See, this is the attitude that I usually come to in a possible situation with. What if God doesn't show up? What if God doesn't do anything? What if this is it? What if it's just over? What if this is the end? I'm a very pessimistic pastor. But what if we approach impossible situations like this? What if God shows up? What if he shows up and changes everything? No, we've been looking at stories of faith in the Bible as we talk about how do we develop an unshakable faith in our life. And today we're looking at Jonathan. Jonathan is an example of someone who approached obstacles with a what if God shows up attitude rather than a what if God doesn't show up attitude. And the story we're going to look at today is found in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to read 16 verses. It says, one day Jonathan, son of Saul, Jonathan is the prince, Saul is the king, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, and he was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas. Ahitub should go on our list of uh, possible names when we're adopting. Um, okay. The son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass, that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One cliff they called Bozaz, and the other Shanai. I don't know why they named cliffs, but they did. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, and the other towards the south towards Geba. And Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps the Lord will act. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether he saves by many or by few. Do all that you have in your mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you heart and soul. And so Jonathan said, come on, we'll cross over towards them and we'll let them see us. And if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we'll stay where we are. We won't go up to the fort. But if they say, come up to us, we're going to climb up the cliff because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine ford and said, look, uh, look, said the Philistines. The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. And the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. And so Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me, for God has given them into the hand of Israel. And so Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. And in that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. And then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and those in the field and those in the outpost and the raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. And Saul's lookouts at Gibeon Benjamin saw the enemy army melting away in all directions. Now, 
Uh, in our last story we look at, Israel was still wandering around in the desert, but the Israelites are now a nation and they have their first king. But they're oppressed on every side by these Philistine people. And what they would do was they build forts around the land and they would come out from their forts, raid the land, take any, um, any grain that they grew, any valuables that they had, and then go back to their forts. And so they're trapped inside this land with enemy forts all around it. And every time you get anything, anytime you can scrape two pieces of money together or you get a little bit of food to feed your family, Philistine raiding party comes down, beating on your door, taking all your stuff. And so they lived in constant fear of doom, constant fear of being attacked. You never knew when you were going to hear the beat of war drums and the Philistines were going to be at your door. It was a horrible way to live. And so King Saul said, hey, I'm king of these people. I got to do something. So he gathered an army, a tiny army of 600 men and decided to go clear the Philistines from the forts around the land so they couldn't raid Israel anymore. Now, the only problem was Saul was really nervous to actually go into battle. And so we see that he just starts scouting around. He's like, there's a fort. There's a fort. Okay, we've identified where they are. Now let's sit under a tree. And he goes to a pomegranate tree, and he's just like, he's chewing on some pomegranates, and he's like, we've got to do something about this. But I'm not sure I'm ready to do anything yet. And so he kept putting off doing something, but he wanted to look busy like he was doing something like a king should. But Prince Jonathan here, he gets tired of waiting around, and so he says to his armor bearer, let's, let's go do something about this. There's a fort right there. Why don't we do something instead of just sitting here talking about doing something? Let's get busy. One of the things, millennials get a lot of hate. I went to a meeting of uh, pastors earlier this week, and we were sitting around and we were talking about, how do you reach millennials? What's the problem with millennials? You know what I love about millennials? People always say what they hate. There's a lot of things I love. They hate sitting around in meetings talking about the problem. They want to go and do something. I'm sitting in a meeting about millennials, and I'm like, why don't we just go befriend some millennials instead of being in a meeting about it? That's what I love about millennials. They want to do something. And Jonathan had that attitude. He's like, let's go do something. But they don't tell King Saul. It's just a little note there in that passage in verse 1. It says, yeah, let's go do this. Don't tell dad what we're about to do. Why? Because King Saul would have talked him out of it. King Saul didn't have any faith. And sometimes there are people in our lives who suck the faith right out of us. I call them faith vampires. They feed their lack of faith by robbing you of your faith. They try to rob you of your step of faith by saying, oh, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. That's too risky. That's too hard. That won't work. What if God doesn't? Now, sometimes they pitch themselves as concerned and loving friends and family members who warn you of the risk and the potential pain. Sometimes they're like, I'm a realist. You're too idealistic. That's never going to happen. And they, they try to prevent you from failure and try to prevent you from falling. But the result is always the same. Every argument from someone who's trying to rob you of your faith starts like this. What if God doesn't show up? They approach it always the same. What if God doesn't show up? Now, my, my parents love me, and their love leads to them protecting me. But a few years ago, I had a chance to go to India, and my parents meant well when they asked, like, what if you get malaria? That's a real threat over there. What if your plane goes down? That's an over-12-hour flight. What if some terrorist gets you? Or what if you get kidnapped in human trafficking? What if you can't pay the $3,000 to go on this trip? 
These were real questions, and because they loved me, they wanted to protect me. They feared me falling, but fear can also prevent you from flying, I think. Jonathan here looks at this fort, and he says, perhaps God will be with us. Let's do it. And so many times I look at something and I say, if God doesn't show up, this is going to be bad, so let's not do it. Jonathan didn't say, perhaps God won't. He said, maybe God will, and then he jumped. I'm always looking at all the reasons something won't work instead of looking at the one reason it will work, God. Like too often I'm looking at the resources that I have, what I can accomplish, instead of looking at God and what he can accomplish. Jonathan had a holy audacity to risk everything for God. He had a confidence that God was good and he expected him to show up, but even if he didn't show up, he imagined that God would somehow use his sacrifice to do good for others doesn't say this, but I imagine that Jonathan thinks, even if I go over there and get slaughtered, my death will force King Saul to get off his butt and do something and avenge my death. And he says, either God's going to use me to take this forward, or he's going to use my sacrifice to inspire a nation. Most of us go through life, if you go through life like I do, with a scarcity mentality rather than an abundance mentality. You know in video games, I love video games. Scotty and I played some video games yesterday. So there's, a, there's an energy bar in a lot of video games. And as you use special attacks, your energy bar goes down. It's like, oh, you use that special attack? Well, now you're down to 20. You use another one, you're down to 10. Oh, you're out of energy. You can't do anything. Sometimes that's how we think about God. We're like, oh, he used up all his energy on that person, so he has nothing left for me. God has unlimited energy bar. It doesn't deplete as he does good things for someone else. It doesn't deplete as he does good things for us. He has unlimited resources to share. You know, sometimes I get jealous when a peer succeeds because I think, well, that means there's less success available for me. God has unlimited available resources to share. Jonathan decides it doesn't matter how much we have or how little because God is the deciding factor, not us and not what we bring to the table. He says in verse 6, God can save with many or with few. He says the deciding factor is God, not us. So it doesn't matter what we bring to the table. Sometimes we look at um, the leadership qualifications that people have and we think, okay, this person has potential. If God is with them, they have infinite potential. If someone has tons of skills, but they don't have God with them, they have a very limited potential. They could have the best human potential, but with God, you have infinite potential. So now, for clarification, we need to look at something back in chapter 13. First Samuel 13, 22 tells us that there were only two swords in the entire nation of Israel. So this army of 600 people, there's only two swords. King Saul and Jonathan. They're the only people who have swords. Because the Philistines were smart. They built all these forts around the nation. They would come in and rob. And then they said, you know what? If we take their weapons, they can't fight back the next time. So it'll make it easier to raid the next time. And so they confiscated all the weapons every time they came in. And so this army of 600 people had no swords. Only Jonathan and Saul, it says, had swords. It says they armed themselves with farming implements. They would sharpen points onto cattle prods and pitchforks and axes and try to make them into weapons. And so there's only two swords in the entire nation. Now, most of us would have looked and said, okay, 
all of the entire army only has two swords, we gotta protect these swords. These are valuable resources. We only have two of them. We shouldn't send one of our only two swords over there to get killed at this fort. That's a waste of resources. We have to protect our limited resources. But Jonathan looked at it a different way. He goes, only two people in the whole nation have swords and I'm one of them? I better put this sword to use. He had an abundance mentality rather than a scarcity mentality. Sometimes we think if we have limited resources, we need to hoard them, we need to protect them, we need to control them and hang on to them. Jonathan's like, how do we release it? How do we use it? How do we send it? Jesus told a story about abundance and scarcity to his followers. He said a master was going away to a far country, and so he divided up his wealth between three trustworthy servants. It was a vast amount of wealth, and he gave to each according to their ability, and he says, I want you to manage this and take care of this money and use it so that when I return, it's been put to good use. And so he returned after his journey, this master, and he went to the first servant, and the first servant said, I've taken what you've given me, I put it to use, and I've doubled it. Here's what's yours. And the master said, great job, you're a great servant. I'm gonna give you even more responsibility so you can manage more because you took what I gave you and you used it. The second servant comes up and he says, I took what you gave me even though it was less than the first guy and I put it to use and I doubled it. And the master again was pleased and he said, great job, you know, I'm gonna give you even more responsibility and you're gonna manage more of my money because you have proved yourself worthy. The third servant comes up and he says, Master, I was scared that I'd lose your money. So I dug a hole in my backyard and I hid it. And now that you're back, I dug it back up. It's still there. I haven't lost any of it. Here it is. And you know what the master in this story that Jesus tells says? He says, you're a wicked servant. Why? He didn't lose any of the money. He brought the money back. But he also didn't risk any of the money to see it used to make more. The master was furious, and he took the money that that man had and gave it to the other men who could manage it and use it. I think that the master wouldn't have been angry if he said, I risked everything for you, and I lost it, because at least he had done something. Instead, he hid it. He acted in fear. And then Jesus ends the parable, this story, with a message like this. Everyone who has been faithful with little will be given more. They will have an abundance. And he takes it and entrusts it to the other servants. If we wait until we think we have enough resources that there will be no risk, we'll be waiting forever. God rewards those who risk for his glory and for other people's good. He would rather us risk and fail instead of playing it safe. The one who played it safe in this story that Jesus told was called wicked. You know, in churches, we use this term evil, sin, wickedness a lot. And we usually say it's things that you do or it's things that you say or it's things that you think. And I think that's true. But I think we leave out an important thing that the Bible talks about. Wickedness isn't just what we do and say and think. Wickedness, sin, evil is also what we fail to do in faith. When we fail to act by faith, when we say, I'm just going to keep what he's given me safe, buried in the ground, and I'm not going to take any risk. Jesus in that story says that person was wicked. In James 4, 17, it says, whoever knows the right thing to do, taking a step of faith, and fails to do it, it is sin. I'm like, that verse can't be right. Like, sin is if I go up and I say something hateful to someone. 
I think a lustful thought. I steal money from somebody. That's sin, right? That's wrong. And says, hey, if you know the right thing to do is to take a step of faith and you fail to do it, that is sin. If you play it safe, that is sin. Now, jumping back to our story with Jonathan here, Jonathan's servant, his armor bearer, affirmed and supported his reckless plan to charge a fort with two men and one sword. So I don't know if Jonathan would have done this if he didn't have somebody backing him up. He needed someone who says, I am with you heart and soul, like his armor bearer does in verse 7. Now think about this for a minute. The armor bearer's job was to help Jonathan put on his armor and to carry his shield into battle so that if he needed his shield, he's like, here it is. He's kind of like your resource guy. He's like a caddy on the golf course, but for weapons. And, uh, you know, Jonathan only had one sword, so all he carried around was Jonathan's shield. He was agreeing to go into battle with Jonathan against an entire fort without a weapon. But if you look at verse 13 here, it says that Jonathan killed people, and then his armor bearer, his shield bearer, went behind him and finished them off. So the shield bearer got to kill people. And so the only thing I can think of is like, what did he kill with? He had to use his shield, right? He was carrying Jonathan's shield. So I think Jonathan's armor bearer was the first Captain America. That's my, uh, that's my official biblical opinion. Or we could say Captain Israel. And so I think he's just going up and he's like bashing people and hitting them. I really, I asked Darby if I could throw this. She said, do not throw that. She's like, you're going to hit somebody. But I don't know. Sometimes when I read the Bible, the Bible doesn't seem boring to me. It seems exciting. And I'm reading this and I'm like, he's throwing his shield like Captain America does and it's bouncing between people's heads, you know, and he's smashing people and breaking their bodies. And it sounds epic and awesome to me. And, uh, you know, I was like, Darks, do you think I could bring a shield in? Because people aren't going to remember anything I say, but they'll remember a sweet prop. And she said, yeah, yeah. I said, do you think you can help me make it? And she made it like a thousand times better than it looked in my head. I was going to make this crappy little shield, and she made something awesome that I'm going to save forever now. Um, but I love this story because here's this guy, Captain Israel, backing up Jonathan, and he's just going through beating everybody to a pulp with his shield. It's amazing what we can do if we have somebody who believes in us. It's amazing what we will be willing to try or risk if we have somebody behind us. If we have one person who says, I will have your back, I would charge hell with you, that does something for our soul. It does something for our faith. When people know we are with them, Win, lose, or draw, it empowers them to take powerful, world-altering steps of faith. You need somebody who believes in you that much. And you need to be somebody who believes in other people that much. Did you know our world is experiencing an epidemic of loneliness? As we become more connected digitally, we're becoming less connected relationally. As a result, we have less people who have people who believe in them. And I think we have less people who have somebody behind them to help them take a step of faith. Now, you know how Great Britain has a ministry of defense and a ministry of finance and a ministry of magic. That was just to see if you're listening. That's from Harry Potter. Um, Britain just created a new ministry, a ministry of loneliness. 
They created a branch of government in Great Britain. I'm not making this up. You can Google it. You can read about it. And they created a ministry of loneliness because they say loneliness is such an epidemic in our nation. It's just as important as finance or defense or our nation will fall. They created a branch of government to deal with loneliness. We need each other. You need people. I need people. I don't need more likes and followers. I need more people who say, I'm with you no matter what. That changes people. That gives me the faith to take a leap of faith. That gives you the confidence to take a leap of faith. And that's what church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place where you can come and live in community with people who have your back. People who charge life with you and won't leave you no matter what happens or what you do. No matter how bad you mess up. No matter how ugly it gets or difficult. That's the picture of church that compels me to keep going to church and keep building a church when I see betrayals and delays. When I see churches do stupid things in the name of Jesus. This vision of a community of people who come together and believe in each other and support each other regardless of whether they fail or fly. That gives me the hope that church is something supernatural. So here in verses 8 through 10, we see Jonathan hatch the world's worst battle plan. You might have heard of some bad plans in your life. Um, my dad was a big World War II history buff. We saw like every World War II movie. And uh, sometimes you'd watch some of the things they do and you're like, why did they send all those people to their death? You know, that seems like a bad plan. Well, worse than any of those plans is the plan that Jonathan hatches here in verses 8 through 10. This is what he says. There's a fort up there. Let's not sneak up on them. Let's show ourselves to them. And then, if they say, hey, climb up this cliff, we'll know that God's giving us the battle. That is a horrible plan. Everything about that plan is bad. A sneak attack would have been better. If you're attacking a fort, there's only two of you, there's a fort full of soldiers over here, why don't you try to sneak in ninja style, pick them off one by one, you know, maybe make a distraction, set the place on fire, do something better than saying, guys, guys, do you see me down here? If they saw you, okay, say, okay, they see us, we can't sneak in. You could say, climb down the cliff and fight us. Because then they're climbing down and you can stab them as they're climbing down. They'll be tired from climbing down. Some of them might fall as they're coming down. That's a better plan. But Jonathan says, no, no. If they say, climb up here, that's how we know this battle is ours. If you climb up, you're going to be exposed and you're going to be tired after climbing up the cliff. It doesn't seem like a good plan. And you know what I found in my life? Sometimes we put way too much faith in our plan. We think we're really good planners. And you know what I find? I plan, and my plan never works out. No matter how smart I am, no matter how much training I have, no matter how many other voices I get in on it, and how many contingency plans I make, the plan never goes right. I finally saw Avengers Endgame this week, probably why I was obsessed with shields and wanted to put Captain America's picture up there. Uh, but they came up with a great plan, right, to fix everything, and what happens? As soon as they made the plan, I'm like, this isn't going to go how they want. Plans never go how you want. But I think we put way too much faith in our plans and way too little faith in God's ability. An impossible situation is not going to resolve because you and I come up with a clever plan. It will only resolve, it will only succeed if a supernatural God is involved. 
Sometimes I get together with other church planners starting churches, and we talk about what model we're using, what method, essentially what plan we're following in order to start a church. They look at someone who started a church out in California or in Portland or in D.C. or something, and they think, if I follow the same plan, I'll get the same results. All our human plans are bad plans. It's better to have a bad plan and a good God than a good plan and no God involved. See, we have some good ideas sometimes, but we need God ideas. If we're going to change this world, if we're going to take steps of faith, we don't need good ideas. We need God ideas. One God idea is better than a billion good ideas. If God comes up with something, it's going to change everything. See, I believe the best plan without God will fail, but the worst plan with God can still succeed. And we put way more faith in our plans and in our wisdom and in our knowledge and our intelligence than we have in God's. The important thing is God, not your plan, not your strategy, not your method. Many times we want God to empower our plan so we get the praise. We're like, see God, I came up with this great plan. Just go ahead and empower it and make it happen. And then everybody will be like, man, you're a smart planner. You're a genius. Great job. Great job you did there. We want the glory. God is going to work in our lives despite our best laid plans, not because of them. And so that takes the pressure off. See, sometimes in my life I'm feeling this pressure. But every time I'm feeling the pressure, it reminds me that I'm trying to get the praise. If I want the praise, I feel the pressure. If God gets the praise, he takes the pressure. When I'm trying to fight God for the praise, that's when I feel the pressure. Like, i got to make this work. i got to make my plan happen. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. And then I remember, no, God's got to. He's going to get the praise. At the end of Horizon, whether that's 100 years from now, whether that's a year from now, at the end of Horizon, no one's going to say, man, that Alice, what a genius. Because nothing that has happened here has been because of me. In fact, most of the things that have gone wrong have been because of me. Everything that has gone right has been because of God. So Jonathan and Captain Israel, I'm sticking with that name because they don't name it. Um, reveal themselves. So there's a fort up there, and they're like, Hey guys! Hey, we're from Israel! And the Philistines start laughing. And uh, I just imagine them having super country hillbilly accents. So bear with me. That's not biblical, but that's how I think of it. That's how it goes in my mind. And they say, Hey boys, you come on, climb up here. We're going to teach you something. That's the Alex translation with southern accent. And so Jonathan says, Good news! They want us to climb up this cliff and face an entire fort. God has given us the victory. And so he starts climbing, and two young men climb up the cliff and start killing. Sword slashing and shield bashing. That's the best line that's ever been in a sermon. Sword slashing and shield bashing. Twenty people drop dead. A panic shudders through the fort, but not just the fort. Through the whole Philistine army, they all feel this panic like something's happening. We're getting wiped out. This is bad. It's over. You know that feeling in a sports game where you're like, we could pull this out, we could pull this out, and then you feel that defeat like it's over. And you see people stand up and start leaving because they're like, we're never going to make it back. We've lost it. Even though the game's not over yet, you feel like you're already defeated. That's what happened to the Philistines. That's what happened when I went to the Braves game. It's Philly versus Braves game with darts. I felt defeated, and uh, I wanted to walk out. Because um, I root for the Phillies, and she roots for the Braves, and the Braves won. But before he started to climb the cliff, Jonathan told his armor bearer, 
the Lord has given the Philistines into our hand. They hadn't even climbed the cliff yet. They hadn't killed anybody yet. And Jonathan's like, God's given us this. God's got this. God's won. And so Jonathan attacked. Captain Israel attacked with a holy confidence in the goodness of God. He celebrated the miracle before it happened. He praised God before he swung his sword the first time. Too often, I wait to see if God will show up before I decide whether or not I'm going to thank God for being a God who shows up. And Jonathan says, I know that our God is a good God, a God who shows up, and I'm going to praise him for being a God who shows up even before I see him show up. He was so confident in the character of God, in the nature of God, it was like the battle was already won before he took the first swing. The battle was merely a formality. The victory was already won. In Romans 8, 31-39, Paul says this, What can we say in response to all God has done for us? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? He did not spare his son Jesus, but gave him up for all of us. How will a God who gave us his own son not give us all things? Who can condemn us? Who can attack us? Jesus himself defends us from the right hand of God in heaven. Who has the power to cut us off from the love of Jesus? Will trouble rob us of his love? Will hardship rob us of his love? Will persecution rob us of his love? Will famine rob us of his love? Poverty rob us of his love? Or danger or sword? No. For the sake of Jesus, we may face death. We may be slaughtered for his name. But in the face of death, we are conquerors through him who loved us. I am certain that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in this world or the next can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our King. What would our lives look like if we lived in the holy confidence that God was with us and for us? What would my life look like? What if every obstacle we encountered, we remembered that a good God had led us here not to defeat us, but to reveal his power through us to the world? What if we lived like conquerors instead of living like the conquered? I think it would change everything. Your life, my life. So as we close, four questions. What did you hear? Maybe something I said. Maybe something the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart. Maybe something right out of the passage. What do you need to do because of what you've heard? Maybe you say, I need to get behind somebody like this armor bearer got behind Jonathan. Instead of trying to talk them out of their step of faith, I need to encourage them to take their step of faith. Maybe you say, I need to take a step of faith. When will you do it? It's easy to say we'll do something someday. Right? I'm always trying to put things off that are unpleasant I don't want to do. Set a time frame. Say, hey, by Wednesday I'm going to get this done. And who will help you? You never have to take a step of faith alone. If you say, I don't have an armor bearer, I don't have a Captain Israel to come behind me, well, I have a shield now. I'm happy to be your Captain Israel. I won't carry it if it looks weird, but I will come behind you and I'll come alongside you. And you say, I want to take a step of faith. I'm scared. Every step of faith is scary. When I started Horizon Community Church, it's the most terrifying thing I've ever done, and it hasn't stopped being terrifying. But I haven't done it alone. And you don't have to take your step alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the story of Jonathan. I love this story. I love just the person that he was. 
And Lord, I pray that you will inspire us to have the same confidence in your character that he had. That we are conquerors through Jesus. We are not the conqueror. And so we can face impossible situations because we have an all-powerful God who's with us and for us. You gave us your son, Jesus. How would you withhold anything from us if you've given us everything? And I pray, Lord, that we will walk in your confidence this week as a people of faith.